Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the ATNWB podcast. I am your host, Chris Booker Taylor, and with me, as of never, this is his first time, is Brando Cuts. How are you, Brando? I am terrific. I am very excited to be here. I'm very excited to talk about everything that's been going on. Um, I, I've luckily had a day off today, so I did a lot of reading and looked into the background of some of these people uh, who are making these big decisions, and I'm excited to kind of dissect what's going on here. Oh man, you looked into the Zazlab of it all? I'm so excited. Well, while you looked into their backgrounds, I looked into your background a little bit. And so I know some things about you. No, we're friends. So by default, I know these things about you. Mm-hmm. Although I don't think it's creepy to look up things about people on the internet anymore, right? I mean, it's just by default what the internet is. I think you should do it. I think uh, it, <laughs> you should. We should all research people before we're their friends now. It's fair because you never <laughs> know who could be a serial killer. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which could be a segue right now but i'm not gonna fully use it but um you know (laughs) the the way that i know you is through a theater the long beach shakespeare company that you Mm -hmm. used to be the creative director of and you actually Mm -hmm. gave the theater to my wife holly correct yes i was with the company for 22 years i was artistic director for the last five years oh my god and i am very excited to see what holly's going to do with it i think i i think holly has a fresh perspective to bring to this company that uh i felt like i was getting a little stale and it was time for me to move on that's really beautiful i love that a lot and too she really wants to expand it too obviously people go to the long beach shakespeare company's website um this next year is going to be holly's uh, first season Absolutely. And yeah, that, that website is lbshakespeare.org, and you could listen to um, radio plays that we've recorded in the past. We do a lot of radio plays as well as doing uh, four fully staged productions a year. So I definitely recommend going on there and just browse the archives. If you are uh, nerdy enough to enjoy what we talk about here, you're probably also nerdy enough to enjoy listening to old episodes of The Phantom and and the shadow and all sorts of old radio plays that the company has done. So definitely check it out. Yeah. War of the world, War of the worlds. Yes. Uh, as well as adaptations, classic novels, they just did the wizard of Oz. So there's some very cool stuff on that website. Yeah, definitely check it out. And uh, this theater, the long beach Shakespeare company, the, the main theater is actually the Helen Borgers theater. Uh, who, who used to run the theater. Mm-hmm. I mean, she like, raised you, right? You were basically her son. Uh, that's, that's right. Yep. Uh, Helen came to my high school. I went to Brio High School in Long Beach, and there was no theater program whatsoever. There wasn't even a theater per se. It was this school. I think I was in its like seventh graduating class, something like that. And so it was a brand new school and just didn't have a lot of programs yet. And it was kind of used as an overflow in a rough neighborhood. Um, and Helen came on campus and she helped us start our drama club and directed our plays and then uh, she was artistic director of Shakespeare Company at the time so I uh, finagled a program called School to Career in Long Beach and to give me school credit to go hang out at the Shakespeare Company and so Helen and I got really close and um, and we were together uh, for a long time doing plays and I was always her her assistant director and her navigator and her right-hand man 
if anybody knows the reference of Neurowolf and Archie Goodwin, Neurowolf is the brains and Archie Goodwin is the is the leg man. And that was Helen and I. So Helen was always a genius, and I would just kind of do what she told me. That's really great. But you learn a lot from her, and, and that, that you know that that stuff like definitely uh, melts onto you a little bit. I, I hope. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, after Helen, uh, you know, after Helen's reign, there became uh, the like almost like the suits took over. Right. Because Helen sadly passed away. You then named the theater after her, which is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. But then kind of like, you know, uh, like a suit took over and the goal wasn't anymore at Long Beach Shakespeare Company to 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 like make the best show. It almost seemed like it was just to make the most money. Yeah, I. I, yes. Um, well, you know, it's a small theater company. Helen passed at the end of 2017. Okay. And when I, and so when I took over, it was already the end of that 2017. It was only one show that I directed for that year. Um, and then I directed the 2018 season and forward from there. And I wouldn't say, I would say that the board took over okay. and, and I just just to be fair to their perspective, the board wants to ensure the longevity of the company. Uh, that's their goal mm -hmm. uh, because everyone on the board is a close or was a close friend of Helen's. No one there is a theater person per se. Um, they're all there because they're friends of Helen. And so they feel a different sort of responsibility. Their responsibility is not to produce the great theater because they don't that's not their bag. But they're trying to be true to their friend and trying to have this theater company last as long as they can and to keep Helen's name going. So um, a slight difference in um, in approach and just and Helen was always kind of a loose cannon and the show came first and everything else came second. So they just come from a different background and from a different place that I try to approach with understanding, even if I uh, didn't always have that same approach i love that. i was so much a copy of helen that i i always still came first for me just like helen but you know they have their priority which is the company as a whole for sure yeah. so i mean and that difference is something that i think we'll be talking about with warner brothers today absolutely and uh because in a way um yeah this this relates directly in as uh recently and this is the first time we're talking about this on this podcast and this is the most, you know, this is the biggest news. This is the biggest entertainment news. Um, I'm like, well, specifically in the in this industry, because I feel like like Microsoft buying Activision was really big. But I think mm -hmm. yeah. the Warner discovery that was for the gaming industry. Wow. Yeah. Right. And that's such a huge thing that happened. But here, uh, Warner and AT and T has sold Warner Brothers. Or Warner Media, as it's now called, to Discovery, Discovery Channel, who's that's run by David Zaslav. So he is now in charge of the entire thing. And while my first gut instinct is, uh, while I do think that Warner Brothers definitely needed a, a stronger a reality show core, and I do think like Discovery Channel is the strongest of those brands. Like I've never watched Nat Geo as a twenty-year-old like male, but I've definitely watched like nonstop Discovery Channel for like maybe two years of my life. It was just MythBusters and like Man vs. Wild. I watched for some reason. Oh God, bless the myth. 
Ghostbusters, man. God bless those guys. They're they're doing the Lord's work over there. They are amazing guys, and um, and I enjoy watching them. At one point, there was a, a show called Junkyard Wars. That was a, also a brilliant piece of work on there. And to give credit to, uh, if, if we're jumping into this, to kind of give credit to David Zaslav's strong points is he really expanded Discovery. He did a lot for the Discovery name. Um, he branched out and uh he got discovery uh, he had a crime station that he opened for them he expanded them so much he acquired a lot of smaller things and then was able to do a lot with it like the oprah winfrey network came out of discovery and it was under his direction that that came to be so he took discovery and expanded on what it was doing quite a bit um and brand and and he recognized very early on that there would be some trends within true crime within uh programming directed towards women. Um, so early on, Zaslav did have a very marketing-savvy approach to even Discovery. Yeah, and if we want to be very broad about how the industry used to be, it used to be that uh, television was for women, and, like, movies were, like... I mean, movies were still mixed, but, like, mainly in in the 50s and 60s, like, when television first started... It was mainly um, like for women, and even throughout the '90s, where you had the daytime, you had the daytime talk shows. You still have it today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Ellen, for instance, mm-hmm. which it it was a Warner Brother property, which I think they've been trying to drop her desperately for the last three years. And this was this after the Warner Discovery mm-hmm. buyout. They finally canceled the last couple things that uh, had to do with Ellen, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Uh, but, um, you know, overall, um, um, TV has always been, uh, been more, uh, focused on the female audience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the history of advertising on television towards women is notorious. Uh, if you look at how many programs back in the day were presented by Lux Soap or, uh, Palmade or any various cleaning products that they would say ladies to get your man's shirt as wide as possible and things like that um tv was always was very heavily marketed towards women yeah. and youth and, and youth i'll say youth also for sure and i mean we still have those breakdowns of demographics of course uh but i think that through i mean we just had this revolutionary change in the entertainment industry where we went from 300 uh, cable channels and the seven or five uh, networks like ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox. It used to be the WB network and UPN. You know, they both became the CW. Uh, We had all of that and that all kind of crunched into five apps, streaming apps that we have now. So all of that business was... And we had we had a different channel for each demographic, right? So you had you had a channel that was specifically for you had Disney Channel, which was specifically for like young kids. But then after a while, the demographic became more female focused. While then you had Disney XD, which was more extreme and for boys. And like you know, the demographics for a cable channel got very, very, very specific. And then you're taking all of these specific. Uh, 
channels and these specific demographics and you're lumping them all into one app now yeah so paramount used to have nickelodeon and mtv and comedy central and now those have always been technically separate brands under the same company now they are paramount plus and then they happen to have these different things inside and hopefully they can keep these brands alive while they're inside the incubator that is you know paramount plus or uh um the peacock network you know peacock app <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah the peacock app yeah. um, and all of this i think is has, has very much influenced how Zaslav thinks because he took control of discovery uh as, T as ceo in 2006 before he was um, a director of getting things on on the networks. So he took over as CEO in 2006 of Discovery. And so he came from the cable era where everything was broken down to a demographic. And I think that thinking still influences his decisions. That old school, this station's for this group, this station's for this group, and that we don't cross over type of thing. Yeah. Which now that we have all these streaming platforms, that model is breaking down a little bit yeah that's the one thing that i'm nervous about because obviously uh walking around a little bit the the one thing that broke the internet was the how hbo max they're saying specifically warner or, or yeah warner discovery is saying that hbo max is male skewed while discovery plus is female skewed which like in my opinion like I always thought, and maybe Zazlab is the one that made Discovery more female focused, but I always thought of Discovery as a more male-dominated reality platform than something like Bravo or Oh yeah, or TLC or something like that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, one of one of those peacock networks. And well, this ties in kind of to the big news of this week with Zaslav is that uh, he really cleaned house with HBO's reality. He did not do the same thing to Discovery. Uh, he, it's the HBO-specific reality programming, the unscripted programming. He had over 70 layoffs, I believe. Um, it, it was so he's really getting HBO away from unscripted reality television, which he says is passive viewing or um, or something that should be on Discovery. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you run Discovery Channel and then, like, you know, the most successful reality platform of all time, and then you go over and you buy out Warner Brothers, and then, like, you're looking at the people who greenlit F-Boy Island... And you're like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't work here. It's like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah, boy, Island. Yeah, so it's very interesting to see how this kind of dynamic of specifically skewed programming plays out because then another word that's been thrown in um, is fandom. And fandom seems for some reason in their mind to be related to a male audience. And I'm not sure why that is. I think that um, female fandom is more prevalent, more powerful than it's ever been. Um, and so it's weird to, to me when I hear them saying that they want to skew fandom towards male and HBO towards male and that they are associating fandom with a male perspective 
even though I think like one of their top streaming shows right now is Harley Quinn, which is very much female driven, female written. Like, so I, I'm not sure where they're getting this fandom equals male mindset. And it, it's a little confusing and worrying. It's never made any sense. Even in the seventies, for instance, uh, when you had like, you know, star Wars broke out big. So you had official mm-hmm. magazines uh, that were made, but the there was a demographic that wasn't being targeted, which was the female fandom demographic. So who made the first fanzines, like their own magazines and, and shared them around, were female fans. Mm-hmm. So the idea of a fanzine or the idea of, of like a fan blog really started with the female fandom. Wow. I think if you look at the strength of the female fandom versus the male fandom nowadays, if you could even, you know, call those two things that. But if you talk the extremes of them, I think that uh, that um, like a, a male fan and a female fan sometimes take out. And again, this, these are the very extremes, but take out their um, like anger and aggression if they didn't like something in media and completely different ways. If a female fan and again, I'm generalizing here. But if they don't like it, then they will simply write a fan fiction and they will fix what was broken, right? What they feel was broken in the story. Like, oh, I didn't like this part of this movie, so I'm just going to do this instead and write this. And that's a lot of how female fans mm-hmm. express themselves in the fandom. While uh, male fans, a lot of times, they'll uh, get on a podcast, for instance, like this, and, and they'll spout uh, anger, or they'll go and they'll go on YouTube and they'll make click hate uh, videos and they'll just again they'll they'll express themselves and think that it is um not about them at all but don't realize that because of who they are they're not getting certain aspects of the larger spectrum of of what the story was actually telling absolutely or um i i often re-download and delete reddit and i'll i always end up deleting it because reddit is filled with this very nasty, mean attitude towards anything that's new and different. Um, it's very much a closed off, and and I and from what I read, uh, largely uh, driven by uh, that old male fandom that we're talk that we were talking about. That old style where oh, it, it's for the boys. It's a boys' club. It's like. You know, you always hear these stories about uh, a girl is going to a record store and she's wearing a shirt with a band on it and some guy tries to quiz her on the band's deepest cuts and all that. And it's kind of this constant doubting of the female fandom, which I mean, but then you look at to me, which is really crazy because you look at the some of the work these women do is really incredible, and uh, new characters are being created by women right now. And uh, also, I have to give it up to the cosplayers, uh, male and male and female cosplayers. I give it up to you all. It's incredible amounts of work that you all do, and and some of these female cosplayers put together just immaculate beautiful outfits that really impress me every single time um and so they know their stuff they know their details and you were talking about that star wars stuff there was no internet back when they were creating their fanzines you know uh, there was no they couldn't go and um watch the movie uh, you know on the internet they had to do it from memory when they created their cosplay and all this stuff so just shout out to that sort of dedication yeah for sure 
and also I want to say uh, we love the trans fans out there too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, and I thank you for saying that. The only reason we're talking about male and female is because that's what's been presented to us by Warner Discovery for some strange reason. Exactly. Uh, there's obviously a spectrum that should be respected. And I think that's actually a good segue into st- talking about this Batgirl movie a little bit. Yeah. Because we had a we had a trans uh, side character in this. The the person playing the best friend of Batgirl. We had a trans actor playing a trans character, which is severely underrepresented in um, mainstream media and especially the superhero genre. So this was a chance to really make good in that department and it's sad that we won't get that yeah and we don't get a lot of things when we what that we were gonna get in this batgirl movie and it's really unfortunate so they made about 50 to 20 million dollars on taxes tap for the tax write-offs while at&t spent 90 million on the film which was the same price as dc's league of super pets it's just came out in yeah so that movie made over um um, that movie just made over 100 million worldwide and Halle Berry's Catwoman uh, alone in 2004 made 82 million on a hundred dollar budget wow a Catwoman has a higher budget than uh DC League of Super Pets that's crazy and so my point here is that on a ninety million but dollar budget, you can obviously make your ninety million dollars back, but you didn't spend ninety million dollars. AT and T did, so you're just making fifteen twenty million dollars on taxes. Again, they do have fifty billion dollars in debt because of this deal, but also Warner Brothers has been in fifty billion dollars of debt for the past ten years, so that doesn't ever stop anything from happening with this company. Still is there. It just keeps getting bought out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And IGN, uh, they had a very interesting article, uh, which is why the background cancellation makes no sense. And and the S in sense is spelled with a dollar sign in a very clever uh, use of characters right there. And they, they break this down. Um, and I'm not going to go into all these numbers that I have written down. Uh, the percentages and all this stuff. Uh, but in the end, the write-off, and I think you just said this, is only about $25 million. There, It's not a... And that's only if they put in an extra $30, uh, $30 million. They spent $90 million on this movie so far. And let's say Warner decided to spend the $30 million. Let's say half of that goes towards uh, completing the visual effects and completing the editing process. And the other half of that goes towards the marketing and the release. Uh, and this is based off uh, current estimates from people who know what they're talking about, not just a guy like me, but you could go to IGN and check out that article if you want all those numbers. But just to contrast it, now, if they say that they don't think this movie would make enough because it's not good enough, Morbius still grossed $160 million <laughs> And... I don't even know a single person who saw Morbius. I don't know. I don't know anyone. I would and that movie was in theaters <laughs> twice, right? Twice. <laughs> they brought it twice. back, and no one went to go see it. Yet it still made, oh, wow, over $100 million. That is crazy. Yep. Yeah, this makes yep. 
absolutely no sense canceling Batgirl. Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely check definitely check out that article. Uh, you get some very interesting figures, and you learn a little bit about how these tax write-offs work. They get some big write-offs for failure for failing basically (laughs) i mean uh, you know the rest of us make a better investment and that's just whoops there goes my money but but these higher end people they get a better investment and they get uh quite a quite a nice write-off not everything they don't get everything written off they're not going to write off 90 million dollars that you know they write off a small portion of that 21 percent of that yeah uh plus the state so now it's very coincidental, too, where this happens right around the same week where... Because this movie had my Batman... Well, I mean, like, when I read Batman, I read Kevin Conroy's voice, of course, right? But, like, when... Oh, sure, yeah. Like, you know, 1989, Tim Burton's Batman was it, right? Like, that was... that, mm-hmm. like, And Batman Returns, those were the definitive Batman. So for my Batman to come back in the new Flash movie, Andy Muschietti's The Flash, followed by uh, this Batgirl film. Like, I was elated. And now that uh, this film will will never see the light of day, they actually gave us some screenshots of... um, of, Yeah. And I I mean, I like the suit. I think it looks really cool. The emblem is connected to the... I think it's connected to his cape. Yeah. Yeah. It does. And the cowl. You know, and it's just... uh... DC has always had a problem not listening to their fans, so this doesn't surprise me too much. We've wanted to see Michael Keaton in that bat costume for a very long time now, a very long time. And uh, this was so exciting for us. And now they're even talking. um, I don't think they're talking. I think it's definite reshoots with Ben Affleck replacing Michael Keaton in, in the other movies in Aquaman in the Aquaman sequel. Yeah, so that's that. So it seems seems that the timing here is very specific in that uh, they don't want to maybe confuse audiences with three Batman. At the same time, there has been, um, you know, if we're talking uh, these pre screenings that they show off with without digital effects and things, they're saying the Flash is uh, is is very is getting very high ratings, like the highest ratings that any. DC EU movie has gotten so far. So it's very interesting. I've also heard some rumors about the movie about certain uh like legacy characters that could be appearing in it, which sounds really cool. But it could be all rumors. Who knows? Who knows? Uh traditionally in the Flash comics, uh Flash was originally the one that bridged the whole multiverse theory. Um he's the one that brought in uh, the second multiverse where uh the Justice League met the Justice Society, and that was kind of the birth, the birth of a multiverse for uh, DC Comics. And then it got so spread out that they truncated it in the 80s with the Crisis on Infinite, Infinite Earths, which Walter Hamada was building to. Um, that's That was something down the line that he thought could fix this multiple Batman problem. He for thought sure. after the Flash movie, they could head over to a Crisis on Infinite Earths type of thing, and... And funnel it back down. So, so this idea of getting it back down to a singular universe was coming down the pipeline. It wasn't uh, going to be kind of this uh, scattershot DC movie thing forever. They were working on a way to truncating it at all, uh, very much in the way that the comics did it, actually, uh, which would have been a very fascinating things to see. So it also makes sense because the Flash is this bridge to the multiverse. 
in DC history that he's the one that could give us the chance to have Michael Keaton come back. That could uh, maybe see the uh, upcoming JSA that's going to be in the Black Adam movie merge with the Justice League yeah. of the Snyderverse. I thought that I think that could be a very cool thing. So, so we're gonna have to see what this Flash movie offers. And going back to what you said, there was an article that just came out today, actually. Um, that's very interesting. That David Zaslav is considering keeping Ezra Miller as the Flash, despite their legal issues, despite the fan backlash towards sort of the ethical issues and the behavioral issues. And now, granted, Ezra Miller did recently issue an apology um, and saying that, you know, they have mental uh, illness that they are seeking treatment for. And part of the what Zaslav is saying on the inside here is that three things would have to happen for Ezra Miller to continue as the Flash. Uh, the first thing that Ezra Miller would have to keep in treatment, you know, keep keep going to a, a therapist, much as sometimes a court appoints one. The other thing that they would have to do is uh, they would have to stay out of the spotlight for a while, kind of work um, under the radar, stay out of the tabloids. And then third thing is that the Flash movie has to be a huge success, which of course Ezra Miller can't control, uh, even though uh, their performance is being praised by everyone who's seen it. Yeah, I think... Uh... The help that they get will, I think that in this next year, hopefully we'll see a fresher, newer. I mean, I think they'll go away for a while, get help, and then hopefully we'll see a new refreshed Ezra Miller. Yes. The premiere for The Flash, or maybe, you know, you still like, you still don't let them do the premiere. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we're going to see, we're going to see whether or not uh, the fans find Miller's behavior, um, too much of a turnoff to go to the theaters. That's that's kind of, I think, the big test that's coming up. It's been a lot. It's literally been every two weeks they've been in the news. So it's been exhausting. And <laughs> and I don't know like if it's just because Ezra Miller is something that people gravitate towards, like it's a clickbait issue, or if and you know the the media is like generating some of this content or if it's legitimate, like, you know, there's some legitimate concerns because it, um, it's every, it really is every two weeks that we're getting uh, um, something else. And it's, it's all over the country too. Like it was in Hawaii, then it was the East coast. Then, you know, it, it's been everywhere. So they get around. Yeah. Again, Ezra Miller's The Flash, right? So uh, moving, zipping around everywhere, all over the country. <laughs> just like The Flash, just like The Flash. Yeah. And I, you know, and I think that Ezra Miller, David Zaslav has said that they want to emulate what Marvel's doing. And when we talk about one of the major differences between Marvel and DC films, it's kind of the comedic element. Um, a relatable element. When we see DC films, we see we've been seeing these larger-than-life things happening, these which we see with Marvel too. But we get relatable characters, and I think that's what kind of Ezra Miller's Flash is supposed to bring is relatability. And so I think it, it's going to be something that will either pull people in and restore their faith into DC films. 
or people won't see it altogether because of all the problems. And, you know, you all make your own decision uh, on that. Find it within your heart whether this is something uh, that you want to see or something that you feel turned off by by the actions of an actor. Yeah. And it's tough because, I mean, the the history of the last 10 years of the DCEU, and honestly, like, when we think of the MCU, I do think of it starting with Iron Man. But when I think of the DCEU now, I just think of every, it's everything, you know, it's every live action uh, DC property now at this point to me. Because they did do a Crisis on Infinite Earths with another Flash, with the Grant Gustin Flash, mm-hmm. and they actually tied in a a ton of the different television show universes and they kind of folded them all into one or at least referenced them and showed off showcased uh, and labeled the different earths that these live action cinematic uh um, dc universes are so they actually do go to the batman it's called the earth 89 which is the Batman Tim Burton verse, and uh, you 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 see like um, you, it's it's the character who played Arliss on the HBO show Arliss. Oh yeah, you see him, and uh, Jonathan something I think is the character's name, and you know he's from the original Batman movie, and he's reading a newspaper, and then he looks up at this yeah, and he sees the sky turning red. Alexander Knox I think is the name of the character. Alexander Knox, because I always think give Knox a grant. Give Knox a grant. Oh wow! <laughs> when he tells Alfred, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, he comes back, and you see, you see the Tim Burton verse again for a second, which is really cool. And they they jump all around. So you see, like you even see the Birds of Prey two thousand three uh, WB Network series that was like thirteen episodes. You see uh, a character from that oh, yeah. running away from the sky, turning red, and in her universe, I think that's Earth, like. 203 or 2003 you know it's all just the year that the other show came out it's not too clever um but yeah <laughs> that's so, funny <laughs> that's yeah. funny though so, yeah. i didn't realize they did it that like that that's very funny yeah so at the very very least uh we did get uh to see like the tim burton verse again not michael keaton but we got like a reference to his universe a few years ago and we will see him in this flash movie which Still super excited for, but in the Michael Keaton of it all, we saw Ezra Miller in the Grant Gustin Flash series. He yes. made a cameo appearance where they have a crossover. That's right, and that's that's why I'm just like it's just all the DCEU at this point to me. Like I'm, I, mean, I know some people. Don't it's all like one. Me. Yeah, it's all one. It's all together. Well, I, you know, one guy, one guy who's going to disagree with you with that is David Zaslav himself because he's very being very strict about what's part of. The Snyder verse that he wants to, because he wants all the uh, Justice Leaguers from the Snyder Justice League back. Um, I think Henry Cavill's turned him down a couple times. Henry Cavill, if you're listening, I'm sorry if that's wrong, but it sounds like that you've turned him down a couple times. And uh, so he wants to kind of bring that group back together and be very uh, solid about what's a part of the DCEU. He wants it not to be, he wants to unblur the lines. Yeah, it's very blurred right now because at this point it's everything. So they really need to, uh, they really need to have it, well, they really need to break it down in HBO Max, right? They need to have in the DC portal, they need to have like phases or something. They just need to have it broken down in a way that people understand it. 
Absolutely. Yep. I agree. And I, you know, and DC has that ability, you know, any other, any fellow comic fans out there, DC has the ability. They, anytime they feel like it, they throw out a crisis and retcon things. And if you're willing to roll with the punches, then it works. And they, so they have a way to explain away just about anything. Yeah. And again, it's going to be really interesting to see what this, uh, Andy Muschietti's Flash movie actually does because it seems like it's gonna it's gonna do a lot and but it was doing a lot for that original well that second uh ten year plan because you know we had the first ten year plan of the Snyderverse and then we kind of truncated that and then we got this new plan where they took the money for Justice League two you know they took this three hundred million dollars and they broke it down into three different movies so instead of Justice League two we ended up getting uh, the Joker, which made over a billion dollars, and has like a seventy percent in Rotten Tomatoes. And then you got uh, Shazam, which made like I don't know, it would have made like three hundred fifty million, and that um, has like a ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes. That has a ninety percent, yeah. Yeah, and then the third one was Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of the One um, uh, Harley, Harley Quinn. Quinn. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And uh, that movie made like was like 189, I think it was just under 200 million, and that has like around I think like an 80 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, 82 percent I want to say. And so I think honestly that I I don't know if that was a Hamada decision. I mean, I I assume it was right that uh, taking this money and reallocating it to three separate movies, but I think that was a huge success taking. $300 $300 million and breaking it down into three separate $100 million films, releasing them in theaters and seeing how well they do. Because, you know, you had one that hit high, one that hit medium, and one that hit low, but they were all uh, they were all um, commercially, or they were all critically a success, right? They're all certified fresh, and they all um, move the needle forward uh, in whatever way they needed to in the big universe of it all. So I don't think that this idea of a because again I know Zaslav is thinking you know we want these movies to be big events right we want to spend three hundred million dollars on a DC movie not ninety million but I think there is room for both of course and you're saying before you know what what DC needs based off what Marvel has and obviously everyone wants to be the marvel the mcu right i mean i think it's kind of silly for him to be like we want to be like that it's like of course you want to be like that it like it like what else do you like what else could you say you would want to be like you know i want to be like the dark universe for universal peacock it's like that doesn't try like failure you know like like at the closest and once again they they were trying to be marvel and the thing is it worked for marvel because no one else was doing it to try to do what marvel is doing it's just coming up too late because we tried this before we tried to be like marvel when we made batman versus superman and made it dawn of justice we were supposed to have a man of steel sequel instead we got this movie that's just trying to cram too much into one movie and it ends up kind of a mess yeah, just to compete with Civil War, because that was the thing happening at the time over at Marvel. And again, like, you know, you're you take you're taking uh, Joss Whedon, you're taking um, um, James Gunn, you know, these these two Marvel assets, oh, like, and you're doing your own thing with them. And I think, obviously, the one was a success with James Gunn. You know, he really 
goes in and does his own thing. I th obviously, I think there's some ethical issues with a Joss Whedon's behavior in general on the set of Buffy and all of his TV shows. But um, uh, get some help, dude. Have you ever read the article that <laughs> came out recently about him where he was like, I watched a child, when I was a child, I watched another child drown and didn't do anything. It's like, what? Like, what? what? Oh, I didn't read that. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, he needs some real, I mean, I know he's getting therapy now because it was part of the article. But he he needs he needs all of the therapy that you can find. Like all he needs to do is just go to therapy every day for the rest of his life. I think and never do any movies again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's that's rough. Oof. And this is coming from someone like if you, if if you saw me in high school and you'd be like, hey, that kid Chris, what is he like? And they'd just be like, oh, he's just a Joss Whedon nerd. Like they wouldn't even say Buffy. They'd be like, he's obsessed with Joss Whedon. So that's come. This is coming from me. So. It means something, you know. It's uh, yeah. I am. Uh, but you know, and the other, the other ethical issue is obviously, uh, you know, while uh, Zach is away, uh, dealing, uh, grieving with the death of his daughter, they bring in you know Joss Whedon to complete his movie, and you can tell Zach did not want that to happen. Obviously, with what we came up against, and then you know, then they finally release like a, like you know, finally gets his shot. Which think about the the era of AT and T for a moment, where they just pumped in as much money because you know April eighth was when this became a discovery joint. We we lost uh, we lost some of these some of these big ones like like John Stanky, which was my favorite guy over at AT and T. He's gone now. You know, like all of these big names. We had Jason Kylar. He's gone now, which I can talk about a little bit too because he's really the one that uh he had that idea of releasing all of the 2021 slate of warner brothers movies on hbo max which was he claimed a success but overall um it was called the project popcorn right and uh it definitely failed i think it was 17 movies but uh, all those movies there was the little things judas and the black messiah the tom and jerry movie godzilla versus kong mortal yeah. mortal Kombat, those who wish me dead the conjuring the devil made me do it i don't know is that like the conjuring three or four uh in the heights space jam a new legacy the suicide squad uh, Reminiscence, Malignant, Dune, The Many Saints of New York, King Richard Cry Macho, and The Matrix, Four Resurrections. So they went from, and you know, the idea was to bump up the subscriber rate at HBO. So they went from 46.8 million in December 2021 to 73.8 million in 2022. That's 27 million they gained from this whole, like, Project Popcorn. Uh, the the thing, though, there is that uh, Matt Reeves, the Batman movie, which made, you know, 70, $770 million worldwide, um, you know, they had Hugely successful, hugely yeah. successful. And I think it was like 45 days, maybe it wasn't even that long before they premiered it on HBO Max. And, and just actually. Just to put this in perspective, uh, where it ranks, it is the 
fourth highest grossing DC film, according to Box Office Mojo, uh, because when they figure these things out, they, they take into account how much money has this thing made since it came out. For example, number nine on that list of DC highest grossing films is the 1989 Batman movie. Because wow. all, because it's not that it takes inflation to account, is that it takes into account every toy, every DVD, everything that they've been able to sell afterward. So this, so the fact that the Batman is fourth on this list and it's only been out, uh, I don't know, a year maybe. Yeah. And so oh, not even March. It came out in March. Came out in March. Okay. Came out in March. Okay. Yeah. And the and also the the other thing is Shazam I remember sold really well on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, I don't know what the number is, but I think it's like I think it's about the amount of money that Batgirl like the Batgirl tax rebate was, like fifteen to twenty million. So so they could have got that back. And just to and just to give you an idea, just since we're talking about these numbers, the according to Box Office Mojo, the top grossing films from DC are The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, Wonder Woman, The Batman, Joker, Aquaman, and then you go into uh, Batman versus Superman, Suicide Squad. Uh, I can't read that writing, but then. Just and and the point, I, the way, I, the reason I bring that up is because none of those are what I would call the Snyder Snyderverse movies. They, you know, Wonder Woman yeah. marginally, marginally Wonder Woman, and but, Aquaman marginally, marginally. But mostly, those are standalone movies. All of their highest grossing movies are standalone movies, just like Batgirl would have been. And on Rotten yeah. Tomatoes, I'll give I'll give Wonder Woman it. I know that he produced Wonder Woman, so I'll give I'll I'll give Snyder that. One. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, and I'm not dissing Snyder. I'm just saying the Snyder verse, which is kind of where Zaslav's brain is at, isn't necessarily the highest grossing thing. Same thing if we look at our Rotten Tomato scores. The top Rotten Tomato score, um, it's actually a toss up depending on what day of the week you look at it between Superman the movie and The Dark Knight. Uh, oh, wow. I know, I know. And no one in this podcast, no one in this world is going to guess what the third highest. Score on Rotten Tomatoes is for a DC movie, so I'll just say it. Batman Return. Jonah Hex. <laughs> Batman Return of the Cape Crusader, the animated one that had Adam West and Burt Ward doing voices. That is a 94% oh, wow. fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. If you haven't seen it, and that, that came out. Go see it. It's fun. 2016? 2016. Like, it came okay. out 2016, and it's fantastic. Wow. So good. Yeah. Uh, and they made two of those too, because they made a sequel with um, uh, with what's his name from uh, Star Trek as Two Face, because they never did Two Face in the original show, but they wanted to get an actor that was on TV back then, so they used him. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, you know Captain Kirk. Oh, oh, great. Uh, go Shatner. William Shatner. Go Shatner. Yeah. Into space now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The fourth highest. DC film on Rotten Tomatoes is Wonder Woman with 93%. Then Teen Titans go to the movies at 91%. Then Shazam, Suicide Squad, and Lego Batman are all tied at 90%. And then you get The Dark Knight Rises, and we're all... And then The Batman. And everything from there on is 85% or below. So, once again, these top... The top movies for DC, both critically and at the box office, have all been standalone movies, uh, unless you count Wonder Woman, which marginally 
it, it, it was produced by Snyder, but doesn't really tie into the other movies. I would call it more of a standalone movie. No, and then, you know, it's the first Wonder Woman movie, so that was a big deal just in general, and how good it was was another thing. Like, you know, there's, I, I'm, I'm going to throw him under the bus again. There's the Joss Whedon script of his version of Wonder Woman, and it's very, you know, it's obviously very male gazy because he's a male. Yeah, so that was has a gaze. That leak was very damaging. <laughs> that was not a good look yeah, for him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is funny because that script has, I've read that script like 12 years ago, easily. And so, I mean, I don't know where, not, when, well, you know, I searched the depths of the internet to find that script back in the day. You know, I've also read his script about like, it's basically Die Hard on a Bridge. I forget what it's called. But, you know, I've, I've read a lot of his old scripts like a long, long, long time ago. But uh, yeah, I, re I remember reading that Wonder Woman script and um, not honestly not really thinking about that at the time and in retrospect being like, ooh, yeah, male gaze. Uh, and uh, to bring it back to the Batman, though, you know, finally premiered on HBO Max and it premiered to a higher household viewing than uh, the Suicide Squad, which had three, you know, the Batman at 4.1 million in its first week of views. While, you know, uh, Suicide Squad, 3.5 million, Wonder Woman, 1984, 3.2, The Matrix Resurrections, 3.2, Dune, 2.3. That was a big movie event still, though. And I know Legendary, who produced Dune, really, really pushed for that to be more of a movie experience because they were really peeved off with Warner. That's why they, they I, I don't, like, this This deal really broke a, a lot of, uh, you know, the, this Project Popcorn really broke a lot of deals, obviously. So I don't think Legendary is happy with Warner right now, currently. We'll see again if Zaslav can smooth that over. Uh, but then obviously Zack Snyder's Justice League was awesome. was at 2.2 million. The only one that bested Batman was surprisingly the Mortal Kombat movie, which hit at 4.3 million, surprisingly. But that was the only Project Popcorn that did better than the Batman, which means that Project Popcorn, even though it got that 27 plus million subscriber bonus, uh, not, you know, I don't think it was a success. I think that's why they got rid of Jason Kylar in January. Bye, Kylar. Some to, to make up the, let's say, 30 million uh, for the tax write off that they would have had to do on streaming, they would have had to get, oh, I had that number, they would have had to get close to. 100,000 new subscribers. They would have had to get a lot of new subscribers, and, and so much so that it wasn't really attainable uh, via subscribing to make Batgirl uh, a loss, even in that sense. Yeah, yeah. So, that, I mean, that, that's... They, they even had CNN Plus, which was a $300 million endeavor, and that lasted uh, literally one day less than a month. <laughs> so, like... Yeah, I, again, like th that's that's the thing, too, with streamers is that you do need to have everything in one service and it needs to be marketed to, to everybody, to the entire family. Right. But the like so you do need like really CNN needs to be also just part of HBO Max at the end of the day or um, but like, you know, you, you can't have all these other standalone things because people's attention span is only so big. They can only handle five apps, you know. For some reason, we can handle 200 channels, but can only handle five apps. It's really, I, don't, I guess Netflix did that to us. Well, they, because uh, 200 channels, I'm still paying only one cable bill. With five different apps, I'm paying five different bills. I don't want to keep track of all that. I don't want to have to worry if 
oh, did I pay, did HBO already deduct their money and did Discovery deduct their money and did CNN deduct their money? That's too much for me to keep track of. I want one bill. I'll pay. I don't care if it's a higher bill. I want one of it. Yeah. Yeah. And people always wanted this breaking apart the television and being able to pick and choose what channels you got. And we've, we've gotten that for the last 10 years, five years now, or like three years now. So uh, that's the thing is that currently we're eating really well with these uh, streamers because they have tons of content on them still. It was an arms race. They were just trying to get as much content on their platforms as possible. But currently, I mean, now that almost like it's not about because it's not about how many subscribers you have anymore during the pandemic. It still is the pandemic, but during 2020 and 2021, it was all about how many subscribers you can get to compete with Netflix. But Netflix kind of hit a wall with their subscribers. They're, they don't have they have negative subscriber growth now, subscriber decline. And they, I think these streamers are realizing, you know, obviously $90 million movie for a streamer is, doesn't make any sense, but that was the Netflix model of like, let's be cable. Let's take all of these demographics and have them all for Netflix as well. Oh, look, they have the show Queer Eye from Bravo. Let's also have Queer Eye, you know, they, they, they do a one-to-one of every single thing. And they're doing that with Disney plus now they're like, oh, look, Disney plus has the Santa Claus. Well, we have our own Santa Claus Chronicles movies over here with with an actor that was in a bunch of Dis- Disney movies, you know, like like the, so. Nah. Also, I don't know if you've seen the Kurt Russell Santa Claus movies, but they're fantastic. I haven't. I haven't seen them at all. <laughs> I'm they're, sure they're really, really good. good. They're actually really good. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like that—that that was just that was the business decision there. Like, let's make those movies with that actor, so because it's a one-to-one ratio of this Disney thing. Yeah. Like, let's give Netflix just gave Lindsay Lohan like a three-movie deal, and the only reason why they did that is because Disney has three Lindsay Lohan movies. Oh That's wow! The only reason why you do that. They also like. They took they took um, uh, Shonda Rhimes from you know from Disney like the Netflix took her uh, and um, also they also took Ryan Murphy away because Ryan Murphy was over at FX which was be- becoming a Disney entity so he ran over to Netflix Shonda ran over to Netflix um, I guess out of both of those really Shonda created the more successful content with um, uh, oh my gosh what's it called the 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 that show what show uh, uh, uh Br- Br- bridgerton oh bridgerton bridgerton yeah that yeah, is that is hugely popular now but ryan murphy has serious uh serious track record though that man has, has bridged he's done multiple genres too he's been able to do musicals for for teeny boppers as well as uh, horror movies uh for horror movie buffs i you know uh Brian Murphy is a dynamo. Oh, definitely. I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from him. I love him so much. I think he created, he's created a lot of content for what is now like under Disney, right? With the American horror story. Uh, I just think that stuff like Hollywood uh, and um, I mean, I'm sure prom is incredible, but uh, like, I think that stuff just has not really uh, bumped up the radar as far as like pop culture is concerned on like american horror story was like such a huge thing american crime story 
I mean, even like Nip Tuck. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I just don't think he. Uh, I, I just don't think the Netflix content he's produced has been as popular as uh, Shonda's has. But just, that's just really just Bridgerton. <laughs> <laughs> but Bridgerton is Bridgerton, though. Uh, Bridgerton, yeah, not to be it. sneered at. Absolutely, that is a huge win yeah. for Netflix these days. Uh, for a place that needs the wins, actually. Yeah, that's the thing that we're we're gonna lose this content right now. We're eating well. The I think the arms race is over with Netflix's loss of subscribers. They realize there is a ceiling they're gonna reach. This plateau, this Paramount Plus, if you will. Uh, but like uh, so Netflix threw us in with all this stuff we know and love, and then they slowly started to phase more and more stuff out and making original content. Yes. Uh, but but the problem is, is they don't really dedicate themselves fully to any of this original content. The second it starts to slip a little bit, things are always on the chopping block over at Netflix. So it's becoming, I think they're losing subscribers partially because it's not as reliable. Everything is always on the chopping block there. I feel like if I fall in love with the show, how long do I actually have? How many seasons of Lost in Space do I actually get? I know I'm the only one who watched it, but things like this. And so they'll, they drifted towards original content, but then didn't really always back it up. Uh, unless it was true crime, true crime they keep doubling down on. But they were pretending at the beginning to be backing it up because they were very precise with it. I'll, I will I'll, like Holly was working on Lady Dynamite, a Netflix series, and I was actually I got to be on the set one day, and someone was like, "Oh, I hope we get a second season." And I was like, "What makes you think you're not going to get a second season?" And he was like, "Oh, I don't know. It's Netflix. I just don't know." And I was like, "Well, listen. Right now, they're giving every show a second season, or..." they're pretending that a show has two seasons by cutting up the first season into two like they did with the get down that was at the time when netflix was very strategic and they wanted to make it seem like they were giving everything a proper fair shot so everything got at least two seasons at the beginning but now it's all now it's a I think example the, yeah the first show i remember only getting one season and i'm sure hurt them a lot was that uh I think it was called like everything sucks or something. It was supposed to be like a '90s show, just how in the way like Stranger Things was an '80s show. So super emphasizing like how '90s it was, and uh, I think it was called Everything Sucks. And that was the first show I remember only getting one season without them breaking it into two like smaller like season one A and season one B and pretending they're season one and two. Yeah, and I think the get down is such a good example because that is something they split it up into two seasons, like you said, and it was in that second season that it really gained viewership. But by that point, the trigger had already been pulled; it had already been canceled, so it didn't get its fair time in the sun before deciding to not give it its second season. Too bad, great show. Yeah, but again, they they saw Warner Brothers had Baz Luhrmann, so they're like, let's grab him, let's grab him for a thing, and let's make a mm -hmm. thing with him. And then let's, you know, let's pretend we cared about the thing when we really don't. And Netflix recently uh, acquiring Seinfeld and putting Seinfeld on there. And um, and the Spider-Man movies, they recently had the Spider-Man movies on Netflix as well, too. These are things that for a while they were drifting away from. But uh, to see these things on there really made me turn my head sideways and, and wonder if they're kind of going to to try to acquire more ready-made content again and try to rebuild what they've lost. We'll see.
Yeah, we'll see what it, we'll see how it works. And on the HBO Max Warner side of things, though, uh, Discovery had removed 200 episodes of Sesame Street, which oh yes, is, yes, yeah, which is sad. But the, the same time, like, and I, like I think I think it's the highest show. I think it's like 60 percent where uh, it's the show that the like the most single like if you have a HBO Max uh, a subscription and you watch one show. That sixty percent statistically, it's Sesame Street. Like they just put it on, and there's hundreds and hundreds of episodes, and you just let it play, right? So, but I think that this was again the arms race, more of getting like, oh, Sesame Street has like thousands of episodes. Yeah, let's get that for our, let's get that for three years for our HBO Max. You know, uh, the thing that's scary because that doesn't scare me. I think the thing that scares me is that they removed original titles from the streamer. Which that is weird, and that doesn't that doesn't settle with me correctly. But those things, I'm going to read them off real quick. But it's the Twelve Dates of Christmas, About Last Night, Aquaman, King of Atlantis, Close Enough. Oh, here's Ellen. Ellen's next great designer, and that's the thing. Ellen also had Little Ellen. So, um, yep. so uh, along with uh, uh, along with Batgirl was also Scoob Holiday Haunt. And Ellen, yeah, and uh, Little Ellen season three, they finished, completed, and it's just going to be shelved now. They're never going to air it. Uh, and uh, let's see, let's keep going with this list though that they're pulling: Esme and Roy, the Fungies, the Fungies, uh, Generation Hustle, and then also just Generation Infinity Train. Which they're not only getting rid of Infinity Train, they dropped the Facebook account for it, the Twitter account. Any mention of it is scrubbed out of HBO and out of Warner Brothers. The show just doesn't exist anymore. Like, yeah, and this is something I want to come back to because uh, I'll let you finish the list, but I want to come back to Infinity Train in a second. Okay, yeah, because I, I really appreciated that show. Uh, but uh, My Mom, Your Dad, Odo, Ravi Patel's Pursuit of Happiness, Summer Camp Island, The Not Too Late Show with Elmo. I really hope... All right, P.L. Yeah, I really hope this Elmo show and the these other shows that are in here that are part of the Sesame Street brand stay alive somewhere else because they're too precious. Uh, the Runaway Bunny, which I didn't even know they did an adaptation of. Uh, Theodosia, Tig and Seek, uh -huh. and Yabba Dabba Dinosaurs. They're so, like, Yabba Dabba Dinosaurs is the Flintstones. It's a Flintstones project. That's as Warner, as, sorry, as Turner uh, Broadcasting as you can get. Like, why would they get like, why would they get rid of that? Unless I guess, I don't know, to give it to someone else for a while to sell it to someone else. Just seems I don't think they can because it's Hanna-Barbera property and they still own that. They still have Jellystone up. Uh, OK, good. They that, created that's a Jellystone cartoon. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It's really funny. Um yeah, and so just – and the thing I want to say about Infinity Train, yeah. because this actually I think is the biggest fear for Warner Discovery right now is that they're burning so many bridges with artists. Mm -hmm. Artists are going to be afraid to work with them, and this is something that I – very much believe it. And this is kind of where my background as an artistic director comes into play, where I'm very protective of my relationship with artists. It's the most valuable thing you have as a creative company is now granted, you could always find new artists, but doesn't a new artist want to risk it with discovery Warner discovery, or do they want to risk it with someone who might back them up a little more like Hulu. And so I, th I think that 
this is where we're going to start to see, did Zaslav make the right choice? Because that's kind of what it all comes down to. That's kind of the question we're all wondering, and only time will tell. Did Zaslav make the right choice here? And I worry about his relationship with artists after this. He's going to lose a lot of confidence. Um, and Leslie Grace already wants nothing to do with Warner Discovery. But they've soured, they've soured a lot of these artists, and it's really... Too bad, because DC is such a great property itself. Uh, it has such a rich catalog and such well-beloved characters that are to America what Hercules was to ancient Greece. It's part of the American ethos, and or mythos, I should say. And, and so it's a shame that we're going to lose artists over this who could make this come to life in such a great way. And it's something that I hope Zaslav considered when he made this decision. And I hope he has ways of repairing a lot of these relationships, because I would hate to see some of those relationships disappear forever. You know, if they really if they really pissed off Michael Keaton enough where he never wants to talk about Batman again, I would be heartbroken. Yeah, yeah, it's really sad. And especially after he came back, right? Like AT and T gets him back, and then and then this all, whole situation happens. And you even had like AT and T pissed off a lot of creatives. You know, Christopher Nolan, the the biggest creative at arguably at Warner, left for Universal, and he's making his new movie over at Universal. So, I mean, even during that time, I mean, like the the Lego Company had a deal, and they now they have a deal over at Universal. It seems like. Uh, a lot of it seems like you know you don't want to like you're saying you don't want to piss off these creatives right you, you do you do want to uh originally what warner brothers was was the filmmaker's studio while disney was the producer studio uh you had the powerhouse producers there um you're pumping out all the great stuff like you know you had bruckheimer back in the day with uh the pirates a franchise those not, beautiful pirates movies yeah i love those movies they're great every one of them even number four y'all shout out to all of them <laughs> a huge shout out to the pirates franchise and uh huge shout out to the franchise. <laughs> and and then and then you know now obviously you have feige there i've always felt that disney was more of a producing powerhouse and and not really like a director's um uh house while i i always felt like you know like they like Warner Brothers always curated directors. They always pulled a director up. You know, you get a horror movie. Universal does this too. But, you know, you get a horror movie director that has like five or six really great horror movies under the belt and you raise them and you start letting, letting them make bigger movies. And then you get a Peter Jackson, you know, you get a James Wan. You get like, you get the people that are making the Fast and Furious and Aquaman movies now. You know what I mean? Like, it's you get these you 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 cure they they were always curating talent and that's what Nolan was. Nolan made all his like original movies at Warner. Like if you look at mm-hmm. all of his films, even uh, the one with Robin Williams, the 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 No Sleep one, um, that's a Warner film. Like all of his movies have been Warner Brothers properties. It's so sad that he moved on to another company because he woke up one day and as he said, he went from. Uh, working for the number one uh, movie company in the world to the fourth uh, best streamer. 
<laughs> wow, rough. Oh, rough. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, I, I will, I will argue against that and say, like, I honestly do think that they are the best streamer. I think I find the best content is, and I don't just say this because of this podcast, but I do think that the HBO brand was is so strong, and they have been able to uh, take that drum, like. Uh, how do, how can I say it? like you know their brand of of drama and um, expand it uh, just a little bit, but then still able to have that high quality. I think has been super impressive. Yeah, I think that they but they hit the ground running though because HBO jumping from HBO, which is a you know more privately paid cable network, there they had a history of creating their own super successful super artistic shows uh you know the sopranos wasn't made for streaming sex in the city entourage all these hugely successful shows were done by hbo before anybody else was doing that sort of concentrated um made for television type of work as we were just saying before arliss dream on (laughs) <laughs> now those are all pre-Sopranos HBO shows, but yeah, I totally. Yeah, so they got to hit. So they got to hit the ground running. I think that the, it was very easy for them. They already had a catalog, a rich, rich catalog of HBO original programming, and they didn't have to build up a reputation the way Netflix had to. Yeah, and they, you know, they 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 looked around and they saw what was a success, what things were streaming really well, and then they made, you know, they made new seasons or sequel series to 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 all that content. Like I know. Like Gossip Girl was a, a WB Network CW show, obviously owned by Warner. And when that popped up on HBO Max, you know they immediately greenlit uh, like a sequel series uh, just because of how much that show is streamed again by women. <laughs> and yeah. and another show yeah. just like that, Pretty Little Liars, one of the most streamed shows on their app. And they made a they made a sequel series, Original Sin, and again mm-hmm. watched by women. And uh, the show that they I'm just going, I'm just harking on this again, just going back to this. The show they really launched uh, HBO Max with was well, they originally, I mean, it's the flight attendant, uh, and that's another show for women. But what they really, really wanted to launch HBO Max with, but they had to wait a year because of the pandemic, was the Friends reunion. Oh yeah, and again, another female-heavy, uh, like, uh, just show. Yeah, and and so. Just to say once again to our listeners, anybody who is listening, that when we say female, from from the studio perspective, not from our yes. perspective, uh, I I watched a lot of these shows. I freaking love the flight attendant, uh, and especially the first season. And so we, we we say this male and female thing because that's what they present these things as. And so just once again to give that clarification, that's not our ascribing a gender to these shows. Absolutely. And uh, I also have always had a pro like this is also coming from a guy who has a uh, Pipsy, which is a female character as like his main on one of his Twitter accounts, like as the main, <laughs> uh, picture, you know, and uh, I think that a lot of times these studios think, oh, if this is a female led movie, then it's for women. If this is a male led movie, then it's for men. And that could be like further from the truth sometimes. And uh, I'm going to have an episode about systemic racism and about Warner Brothers, but I mean, 
if you want to if you want to talk about uh the you know how they the, these demographic you know how they try to pull people into separate demographics they try to do that with race as well but if you mm -hmm. look at the history of if you look at the history of let's say rom-coms for instance the two highest grossing rom-coms are warner brothers is um crazy rich asians and uh the uh my big fat greek wedding, greek wedding are, yeah yeah those are the two highest and they they aren't white people so like the mm -hmm. idea that uh if like your leads have to be white in order to make this much at the box office is total systemic racism bs and we have to remember that warner brothers uh started in and again there'll be a whole episode about this but you know the jazz singer was the first talkie movie in 1927 and that movie is about a guy in blackface it's a vaudevillian it's al jolson yeah it's al jolson exactly it's al jolson it's like as racist as when you think about blackface racism that is the prime example yeah so the first talking movie was a warner brothers movie and it was it was systemic racism you know the first the first looney tune is not Bugs Bunny. It's it's a culturally racist uh, um, portrayal of of an African American. Like it's really wrong, and the history is very very racist of this company, which is going to be fun to talk about even further. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Bosco, by the way, Bosco and Honey were the first um, Looney Tunes. Oh. And. Um, they were based off of the vaudevillian blackface performances. Oh, wow. I did not know that. So, I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's where we are. Uh, but, you know, we, we, you do see progress. We go from, uh, but, you know, the, we do see progress because we go from the jazz singer and Bosco and Honey all the way to, you know, uh, Space Jam and Space Jam and New Legacy. Uh, so I think... I think that is uh, an interesting topic for another time. You'll hear that episode down the line, but um, yeah. And in uh, Looney Tunes news, do we have time for some Looney Tunes news? Well, yeah, quick? take it away. I would love to hear some Looney Tunes news. I love Looney Tunes. Okay, we were talking about this before uh, the before we started recording, but uh, Tiny Tunes University, they like we've seen some some content from it now. Uh, Babs and Buster will uh, now be twins and not close friends. And the voices of the Tiny Toons are not returning. But Jeff Bergman is returning to play Bugs, who played him throughout the 90s. Oh. So, and still plays him once in a while today and plays some other characters too. He's, he's one of their players that they go to for Bugs for sure. And... Uh, yeah, so it's cool that like they're bringing back some legacy voices for uh, the the Looney Tunes, but not the Tiny Tunes. Just fresh new faces they're getting. Oh wow, excellent! Uh, yeah, I, I would love that. I love Looney Tunes. Welcome back, guys. Uh, I'm sad about Scooby Doo though. I'm sad about that Scooby Doo movie. I do have to say, I think that uh, Scooby Doo is a very great property when it's used correctly, and I hope. We see Scooby-Doo come up again the way we've seen Looney Tunes. I'm glad they're bringing back that actor to play Bugs again. I think that's a great thing. I would love to have Matthew Lillard back as Shaggy. I think he uh, is, yeah. at this point, just as iconic as Casey Kasem. And so, um, I agree. Matthew Lillard, if you're listening for some reason, I am a huge fan. Uh, come hang out with me sometime, bro. Yeah, I hope they have Shaggy on Tiny Toons University. 
why not? Why not? Why not? Bring it all. Bring it all together. It's all DC universe now, right? It's all Warner. Yeah, we'll make it the Warner Brothers universe. Exactly. I mean, it's basically what the game multiverses is. Yeah. (laughs) That's the thing. That's and then the kind of so. uh, Well, also, uh, Bye Bye Bunny, a Looney Tunes musical, is going to be a movie for HBO Max, and we think that's safe. the movie is about Bugs Bunny retiring from a long-running Broadway show, but then Daffy is kidnapped, so he must rescue him. And it's written by the Emmy Award-winning writer of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Ariel Dumas. Oh, great. So, oh, just Yeah, I just think that's really... And what's interesting about that, too, is there's another Looney Tunes movie coming called The Day the Earth Blew Up, but that's um, specifically based on the Looney Tunes cartoon shorts. And specifically the ones with uh, Daffy and Porky, which have been phenomenal on HBO Max. Yes, agreed. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so that kind of brings me to my point, which is that this is the 18WB podcast. And as you were just saying, it's all about the WB portion and the DC portion, but the AT portion or the AT and T portion is kind of gone now. So I loved my naming scheme because I originally had, you know, I could be, it was 18WB, we'll start, you know, 18T, and then 18WB, but then I can replace the WB with anything, right? So it can be 18CW, 18HBO. There's, again, it's all, it's all alphabet soup over <laughs> yeah. here at Warner, at Warner Discovery. But I think I'm going to need a different name now for the podcast since... It's been bought out by Discovery. I think and I don't. Know. I think you have to work on it. I think you have to get branding. I think you need a, a theme song where they sing it. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think I think this is your opportunity to rebrand yourself. Ooh, I'll have to do that for sure. I just don't know. I just don't know what it'll be. I mean, I use WB Synergy, which has a little rhyme scheme like to that. it as a hashtag. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, something something with that. I'm not sure. Um, okay, let's bring let's bring it all home. Uh, you, I mean, you did a lot of research too. Do you have any other research to bring up? Anything else that you found important? You know, I think I I got to my important parts. I think I said everything that I felt was the most important thing. Uh, I liked running down the box office and the um, Rotten rot Tomato scores, just because I think it's very telling about where WB's strengths are, where DC's strengths are, which is yeah. uh, to go ahead and not be afraid to let directors do their own thing. You said it earlier, WB has a history of uh, supporting the individual artist, and I think that that was yeah. always their strength, and I would be wary of straying too far from that strength. I... Um, you know, when Zaslav first made this cancellation of Batgirl, I was devastated. I was devastated. I'll be honest. I was looking forward to this movie uh, for so many reasons. Uh, for Leslie Grace, for Brendan Fraser, for uh, Michael Keaton, of course. Um, and I think it would have been something cool and something different. Um, so I was devastated at first, and I was very much of uh, ready to boycott in the streets. But as... As I've researched this and looked into Zaslav's history, what he's up against, he has to find $3 billion. Uh, he's got to make some tough calls. I am just hoping that these decisions are the right ones. I am not convinced either way. 
I hope our listeners keep an open mind as I have um, and, and see and take it as it comes a little bit and kind of deal with the disappointment in a healthy way um, because it, it was a blow. And I think that we'll be losing Walter Hamada after uh, Black Adam. It comes out October 21st, I believe. Um, and then we'll be losing Walter Hamada after that. And so... Yeah, well, I've heard back. I've heard back and forth with that as well because there was a report on Deadline that was like Walter. You know, he's he's taken in like you know. There's like three or four movies that have hit a billion under him specifically yes. with between like Aquaman. Is it Aquaman? Wonder Woman almost hit a billion, right? The and Joker. Joker. Those were like, yeah. And so I like, I can see them leaving him on longer. At the same time. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, he, they said, I think it was like, we'll reassess after Black Adam. So like the success of that might uh, deal with what we'll we'll see where Hamada yeah. goes. Uh, I think it'll, um, I think there is some, men to, some fences to mend between Zaslav and Hamada. If they could come to a, an agreement, I think it could be very good for everyone. I think if those two can smooth out their relationship, I think yeah. it'd be a good thing for fans and a good thing for Warner Brothers Discovery. For sure, and I, I know who I know who will be perfect to replace Hamada. Okay, who I I have an idea too. A property brother. Really? No. no. <laughs> no I was gonna no. say. No, my 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 two choices have always been. Uh, I would want Grant Morrison, although he's he you know he's older mm -hmm. now. Uh, but I think like I've I've always loved Grant Morrison comics, and I think he has a really good sense of the obviously the DC verse, and I like what he did with. Uh, multi uh what was it uh you multi-university or something like that like just in how he broke it down and even how he broke down his uh batman run of taking like 60 years of batman and taking each decade and making it one year i thought was just really cool and unique and uh i don't know i just think that he has a really unique perspective always he always jokes that he's done a lot of drugs and I, it obviously shows in his writing uh, how just unique and creative he is absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah or bruce tim who created the original dcau the dc animated universe when i was a kid it was the warner brothers network and you know kids wb that i watched and it was batman superman adventures and then it was Batman Beyond, and then Justice League, and Justice League Unlimited, and the Zeta Projects, and Static Shock. And you just had this huge, huge, huge universe that was built off of the back of that original Batman animated series. And just because of how good it was, and how good, and you know, how universal it was for everybody. And uh, all of that content, I just think, is so special. I think Bruce Tim is a super unique talent. But again, these are two men in like their mid sixties. So I could I could also like you know, fresh blood is also really good uh, for the DCEU. I just think those two have a really really strong track record, specifically at DC, and I would love to see them uh, take on the movies as well. I uh, I agree with that, especially Bruce Tim. I think he because no one I think can deny that. Um, DC animated has has been ruling the animated game uh, for superheroes since the 90s. It's been so strong for so long. Even still, they're coming out with very strong animated things that are exciting to watch, just as exciting as watching any of the actual movies, the live action movies, which says something for an animated film. Um, so yeah, so and that's all. 
based off the work of so many of those people back then. Uh, Bruce Tim was a part of it. Uh, a wonderful guy, Dan Reba, who I had the pleasure of speaking to for a little bit. He, he you know, there there's some real talent that that has really a Paul Dini Paul first Dini. who created Harley. Yes, Quinn. absolutely. The fact that these people did such a good job on this animated program, this animated programming, because it's multiple, this animated programming that the comics adopted their ideas and integrated so many, not just Harley Quinn, but they retro, uh, retrofitted Mr. Freeze's backstory. Like, you know, it just shows that there's some great talent to be mined there. Uh, I think another great name, which I don't think he would ever do it, but Jeff Johns would be awesome. Terrific. Mm-hmm. I, I do think I would love to see someone with a comic book background. I think that's how you can kind of appease anybody. Yeah, I think you're right. In the 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 upcoming, uh, I could say that quickly, the upcoming uh, DC slate of films, because we got Black Adam coming out October 21st, Shazam 2, Fury of the Gods, which I'm super excited for, uh, December 16th, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, March 17th, uh, The Flash, June 23rd, Blue Beetle, still on. Yeah, still on uh, there. The director still on that, there. Yeah. He finished filming it July 18th. It's still happening. Uh, and it's coming out August 18th. And then Joker, how do you say it? Folly Adu, Adu, uh, is October 4th, 2024, with Lady Gaga as Harley Quinn, which they said it's going to be a musical, but it's going to be more like Star Wars Born and less like In the Heights, which is interesting, which is all Warner Brothers movies, which is interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. I think uh, I'm I am curious how they're going to tackle this Harley Quinn Joker story. Um, it seems like in the comics, in cartoons, in most other forms of the media, even in other movies, that we have been enjoying seeing uh, Harley Quinn free of the Joker. So it's interesting that yes, exactly. we're going back and revisiting that past, and uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how people react to it. Yeah, yeah, because the the Harley Quinn animated series has moved the needle so far away from the Joker, which I think is super healthy for the character. Holly always said that the movie should have taken a break from the Joker for 10 years and just let Harley Quinn do her thing. And they almost did that, kind of. And then I feel like they got cold feet and they still had the Joker in, in like, Suicide Squad and and then they had another Joker, just like a lot of Jokers. Yes, yeah. Um, I do feel like with the um, Joaquin Phoenix Wolf that there was a a definite vision. There was a purpose to that. It was a Joker movie. It wasn't a Joker Batman movie. It was a specific Joker movie. And so I think that, yeah. that once again that that was WB playing to their strength of letting artists be artists. Yeah, you again. They cur- they curated that talent. Uh, Todd Phillips, right, is yep. the director, oh, exactly. and he made the Hangover. Movie. He made the Hangover, yeah, all for Warner Brothers. Yep. So, like, you know, they made that trilogy for, it and he was very happy. And then they let him do what he wanted in in their uh, in their sandbox, right? Yep. With their DC action figures. So continue to let Todd Phillips do his thing. He has a vision, and he executes it well. Yeah. Um, yes. And then we also probably have the Batman two coming. I would. I would expect. And then uh, there was also the JJ produced 
the Tanahisi Coates written Superman movie, which I don't think is ever going to happen, unfortunately. I think that's I think that's been chopped. I yeah. think that's been chopped. Uh, big news, uh, though, is on HBO Max. They will be continuing. It looks as though I don't take my word for it because my internet research is your internet research. So trust <laughs> yeah. that as much. Trust my words as much as you trust your Google search. But it looks as though Teen Titans and um, Doom Patrol, I'm sorry, Titans, just Titans, Titans and Doom Patrol will be returning. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I think those shows are terrific. I was very sad to see uh, DC Universe go away. I thought that I loved the Swamp Thing series. Another tax write off. That was another tax write off. That was another tax write-off, and wow. they they really minced minced words with how that ended too. First, it was it was because they didn't file the proper taxes that they had to write it off, or they owed so many back taxes on it. They had a tax problem in general with that movie, so they just can't use it anymore because of that tax problem. Because I think they used it to write off those very that very tax problem. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. It's a complicated thing that I don't quite understand, I'll be honest. But uh but a terrific show. Uh if you can go out and find a physical copy of it, I have a copy on Blu-ray. If you go find a physical copy of it, uh, of it definitely worth watching, especially if you read any Swamp Thing. If you got into that wonderful Alan Moore Saga of Swamp Thing series, it yeah. isn't that exactly, but it takes a lot of hints from that. That's so awesome. very cool. And then uh yeah, even um Awesome. I recommend to anybody listening also to just do your research into uh, how finances of entertainment go. Even just a quick Google search, it's very fascinating, uh, the history of financing television and financing movies is filled with back alley deals and tax write-offs and uh, Nielsen reports and... Yeah. guys making deals in a smoky room it's just really kind of a fascinating fascinating thing the way uh, even the history of warner brothers itself is very intriguing um as well as the founding of hollywood yeah the the tv show uh, the offer on paramount plus which should really just be called paramount the tv show because it's all about uh paramount of the 70s making the first godfather movie but all of the back alley deals that are made there how the mob was involved then how the mob was actually kind of running certain things because of the unions. It's all very fascinating. And uh, they yeah. they lost one of the actors to MGM, so they had to make a deal with MGM to get the actor back. It was Al Pacino, but then also um, like they had a he traded the Paramount guy traded uh, Al Pacino. Like he got Al Pacino in exchange for getting you know he gave another actor up and the rights to one book which i don't think anything ever happened with obviously that was a good deal on paramount's end <laughs> yeah that was that was yeah that was a good deal yeah, and not a good deal on mgm's end who and like they even talk about had to sell the ruby slippers like a year prior to help pay off their debts which is wild because i keep yeah. thinking about how warner media has this three billion dollar debt or Technically, the $60 billion because of the buyout, but yeah. <laughs> and MGM is an interesting story, too. They have come so close to disappearing from the face of the Earth so many times. Uh, they usually narrow, narrowly escape it with, with a James Bond movie. Um, 
Yeah. So and now they're now they are Amazon. They have been purchased by Amazon, so they'll be yes, safe by Amazon for a while. And I hope that uh, you know that I know Amazon likes to charge their little extras for certain things. But one thing I will really applaud uh, HBO Max for is letting us have the Turner Classic Movies Library on there. Some of us are old film buffs. Some of us love film noir and old Humphrey Bogart movies. Thank you for letting us watch those because a lot of these other streaming services don't cater to classic movie buffs. And so, you know, if you try to search for Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein on Amazon, you have to pay like $13 for it or something. It killed me. Killed me. You want to bring it all back. We can bring it all back. Actually, when I started this podcast was when during the AT&T buyout and what actually AT&T did was kind of merge TCM and HBO together into HBO Max because they had another film service, another streamer called Filmstruck. I don't know if you remember it. But it had all the, yeah, I do. It had all the classic movies on it. And then when AT&T came along, they, as I say, they struck, film struck, and got rid of it, and then just kind of folded everything into HBO Max. Oh, yeah. Good move. Good move. Because <laughs> I, I love old movies, and so it really, really keeps me happy. I, a, I love old movies. B, hate paying more than one bill. I just want to pay one bill and be done with it, as we were saying earlier. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Two, three bills. If I have to pay an HBO Max bill and a Disney Plus bill and a Netflix bill, okay, that's three bills. Maybe a Hulu one, I don't know. But, you know, that at least it's three or four bills. But I don't want to pay Discovery and HBO and CNN when they're all just under one umbrella. I feel like you're making me jump through hoops that you could just do a little more paperwork and make it easier for me. Absolutely. Well, this makes me excited. I'm excited to, if I, like, I really want Henry Cavill to come back as Superman. So that would make me really excited. I don't know. Like, again, as you said. I do too. I do too. I want to see him get another movie. A Superman movie it would make me so happy. Not that. Uh, you know, do like with Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman was able to go into the Justice League movies and then come back out and do her own thing and produce the highest grossing one of these Snyder produced movies, the highest ranked Rotten Tomato movie. I think there's no reason why Superman, Man of Steel did not do poorly in any of these lists that I was looking at. Man of Steel is not incredibly loved, but it's not incredibly hated. Yeah. Oh, that was that was the I couldn't read my writing. Man of Steel uh, did just under what the first Suicide Squad did. Now, the first Suicide Squad, it's an interesting thing, uh, the the earlier one, because it is panned critically, but did very well. But they also spent an immense fortune on marketing with that. And it was a beautiful marketing campaign, too. The marketing campaign was way better than the movie was. And so it it goes to shame. Yeah, and actually, I mean, I enjoy. I actually enjoy the uh, Will Smith movie within that movie. I feel like it's a different film that he's in, uh, but his through line, his emotional through line, is strong in that film. Uh, and uh, you know, Absolutely. there's a lot of air cut talk out there. Like people want the David Ayer version of that movie because you know he's the director, and they took the movie to a trailer house, and uh, they wanted the movie to be more like. James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy. So they had a trailer house re-edit the movie uh, with you know uh, rock music in it, and and then that's the final cut that we ended up getting. So I mean, you know, 
all of these other cuts, I would love getting these films. But the Snyder Cut was just an interesting time because it was, what, 2020? It was 2021 when that came out? 2021 when that came out. But it was in that time where AT&T needed to make content for HBO Max. They were willing to spend $90 million on just giving Zack Snyder money to finish his movie. When now, if you look at it, like, Batgirl gets canceled because it was $90 $90 million too expensive. So three years ago, they're willing to spend, two years ago, they're willing to spend $90 million on on a DC property, and now they're afraid to. So it's just to finish one. Now they're afraid to spend $10 million to finish one, you know? So it was a really interesting little nook, a little moment of time that we were in during that Justice League, uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League era. Absolutely. And and 90 million or even let's say added 30 million for visual effects and marketing, uh, let's say 120 million at the most for Batgirl is still way less than they've spent on any of these other movies. So I don't think it would have been a huge loss had they tried to put it in theaters because ultimately people like going to see these superhero movies. And I I don't think it would have been a bomb in the box office. I think it would have done okay. So um, another reason why I didn't like that decision. Anyway. And the directors were just coming off of Miss Marvel, which is one of the highest rated Marvel projects of all time. Mm-hmm. Arguably, I think it might be the highest rated disney plus marvel series actually and it was wonderful it was so much fun and wonderful and so entertaining and and i learned a lot too because you know there was there was a lot of other culture in there that i never knew about so it was really fascinating to to learn about the partition and things like that yes absolutely absolutely i agree completely in the same way of watching the uh, damon lindelof uh, watchman show and just learning about uh, the tulsa city massacre and that and just like being blown away that i never knew about that before and just like it's devastating that show is devastating it's i recommend who hasn't seen it it is compelling and gripping and rips your soul out but you feel like enriched you feel enriched after watching it i agree and uh let's let's close it out so um last moments of this episode um this uh you make me a little excited to see the future under david zaslav i was a little more afraid and tepid before this but i'm excited to see what the future entails uh i really hope I just really hope that Flash movie is special, of course, since that's going to be our only Michael Keaton. Uh, and I hope that the next after Hamada, if we do lose him, um, knows what they're doing. And we actually get to see, maybe even if it's not the best 10 movies or 10 years of movies, I just want to see, I really want to see a DC 10-year plan come to fruition. <laughs> Yes, I I would like to see that too. Um, I I'm trying to give Zaslav the benefit of the doubt. I was very hurt on several levels to see a movie that would have had brought so much diversity to the DC uh, extended universe. I was hurt to lose a character that is different and quirky and fun, and I was hurt that. We didn't get to see um, Michael Keaton and Brendan Fraser and Leslie Grace all sharing a screen together. But I am trying to remain open-minded, and Zaslav has a hard job in front of him uh, trying to find $9 billion. 
and I'm also sad to see Scoob go. So I'm just trying to remain optimistic. I think it's part of my personality too, is to try to see the better in it. And so David Zaslav, if you're listening, I hope that your big gamble pays off. You either have pissed off so many fans and so many artists that this is going to be known as the biggest blunder in cinematic history, or it's going to pay off big time for you, and only time will tell. I don't know. Yeah, and time told with Jason Kylar, as we put the final pin on him, where in January he left the company just because his Project Popcorn was a failure. So, you know, you never know what it is until later on, you know, when you look back history has its eyes on you right you look back and you're like oh okay that's what it was it wasn't as successful as project popcorn was as successful as maybe i thought it would would be uh so we will see what david zaslav does i'm here ready Uh, i know he's the king of shark week but i'm here with my bat shark repellent (laughs) just in case Uh, with our bat shark repellent um, I'll have to come back on to another podcast and uh, tell everyone why Adam West is actually the best Batman. Oh, definitely. Like, we should just do an Adam West Batman uh, a W breakdown episode. I think that would be really fun, actually. I did a general Batman <laughs> breakdown with Benny, who you know, but I think specifically an Adam West one would be really special. Uh, absolutely. I would love a Batman breakdown with Benny. Uh, and that all has bees in it, too. Wow. Our friend Benny has a Batman shrine with Batman toys from different eras and everything else. And um, and he's even investing in artwork uh, that was never seen from the sequel, which would have made yeah. Billy D. Williams Two-Face. He has that artwork in his house. And it's really cool to see those comic panels and how that would have come to life. And so I would love to hear his thoughts on these Batman um, I think we're getting a little too gritty with our Batman. I, I would love to see a flashing red phone in the future sometime. Yeah, and, and well, you said the the highest, I don't know if it was highest grossing or just uh, the highest critically acclaimed uh, DC movies, but two of them, I think they're above 90%. I think it was like 90, 91, or 91, and 92, were the Lego Batman movie, mm-hmm. which also has a multiverse element in it because they have like the Wicked Witch of the West and oh, uh, Voldemort in it. And then, uh, and then also Teen Titans go to the movies, which is I, I do agree with Rotten Tomatoes. I think it is one degree better than Lego Batman movie. One percent, one percent better. I hundred percent agree with that. I think they're both great films, but I do think there's like I don't know Teen Titans go to the movie, the musical aspect. I mean, there are little, there are too too many fart and poop jokes, but like. Overall, that movie is just so silly and so funny. It's really clever what they did in that film. Yeah, so if you look at the breakdown of the top Rotten Tomato movies, 50% are just a good time without uh, having Batman go around beating the crap out of people. Um, So take that into account as well. We We do like a little fun with our DC, not just the dark stuff. Yeah. Oh, so here's my final thought in talking about the dark stuff. So we started, you know, we got really dark with with Batman because it was always a zig and zag, right? So we had the light and fluffy Adam West, and then we had at the time the dark and brooding Michael Keaton, and so we had two of those. And then they were like, okay, maybe we need a zag now instead of zig. So then we get the two Schumacher ones, which are more light and fluffier. And I really love both of those movies, specifically Batman Forever. I like. And I like know that Batman and Robin's a really bad movie, but I always have a lot of fun watching it and how hokey it is because it's just fun. 
And then, of course, they have to zig at now. I think it's zig instead of zag. And they do the Nolan trilogy, right? Which is very earnest and very, like, down to earth. And, like, you know, Catwoman's ears are justified in her suit. There's just her, her, her little eye things and she flips up her goggles. Like, everything, everything has a justification, a real-world justification in those movies. Very grounded. And then, um, since those were so successful, they're like, okay... Like that's it. We 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 found it. So let's try to branch out of that more. So then they had Nolan produce that Man of Steel movie with Snyder. You know, Snyder Snyder was one of those uh, directors that they curated and brought up. So then they you know they decided just to have the run with that, and it was a ju- good juxtaposition to the 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 color palette, the bright color palette of the Marvel movies and the the fun more in the fun witty dialogue back and forth you know the serious moment cut with a joke uh is the very marvel thing of it all and um you know dc was more about that the snyder idea of it them being more brooding and them being more godlike and and everything just having what he felt is this epic feel to it. And so that's what they're trying to bring to these DC movies. And I think there's a plateau for that. I think it's about $708 million. (laughs) I guess. And, and I do think you do need that lighter sense in there as well. Cause in the juxtaposition of it all, we recently did have Marvel go Snyder. They did make a, they did make a DC Snyder movie in Eternals, right? Eternals, the creator of Eternals, was uh, the the characters were created by one of the original founder, the creators of DC, Jack Kirby. So uh, Jack Kirby uh, helped create a lot of the characters and, and the look and the feel of the DC characters. And then he went over to Marvel. And so what does he do? What is the first thing that he creates? He creates the Eternals and he takes all of those DC characters and makes a Marvel equivalent to them. So there's a fast person there's an invincible person with laser eyes and every you know every character is a one-to-one between dc and eternals and then so you know 20 30 years later you have marvel now making an eternals movie so they do decide to make it like brooding and they do decide to make it more of like snyder's justice league or snyder's batman versus superman and you can see the plateau that that movie hits too as far as not even just box office success, but as long as critical success too. Yeah, it's, I think it's the only Marvel with a negative Rotten Tomato, I believe. Yeah, I don't know if it ever dropped that low, but you could be mis- You could, yeah, I can see it. Yeah, forty-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes for Eternals, which and a seventy percent audience say, I score. Observed. I don't. No, no, no. That is way too low for that movie. Um, I think it should hover in like the seventies, probably. Right? I think like it's a beautiful looking movie, just like Snyder movies. The beautiful looking, um, gorgeous shots throughout the entire thing. Everyone looks beautiful. Everyone in this movie, Eternals, is beautiful looking. Same thing with Snyder's movies, right? Everything, everybody's just gorgeous, and uh, that's absolutely. Yeah, I will say that. When we, we I th- we keep citing things like box office mojo and Rotten Tomatoes, and we're looking at numbers, and we're and the only reason I take this approach in this podcast is because that's the approach that studios measure success by. 
Now, what I personally like doesn't ne- isn't necessarily reflected in what we've been talking Absolutely. about. Teen Titans is one of the best things. Um, you know, Superman the movie, I love. The 1966 Adam West Batman, like I said, I think a lot of these are fun. I think Birds of Prey is a way underrated movie. I agree, yeah, definitely. Shazam was terrific. I, you know, um, so I, I don't always think the of uh, Rotten Tomatoes and box office success and box failure necessarily what I would call a film to be a, a failure or a success. But that's what the met, the studios measure it by. So that's what I'm going with. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, interesting. The uh, Wes Craven Swamp Thing uh, from Forever Ago actually scored better in Rotten Tomatoes at sixty percent than Batman versus Superman at twenty nine percent. Wow. I found. That. Yeah. And again, when people that campy Swamp Thing movie, which is super fun, but sometimes a little too campy, but they like that campy Swamp Thing movie that much more than the Batman versus Superman. Yeah, and I do know people say the director's cut is better than the theatrical release of Batman versus Superman. Uh, I, I would want to see a, um, a theatrical, I mean, a, a director's cut of uh, Swamp Thing as well. <laughs> I welcome it. Um, yes. So that comes, we come to the end of the ATWV podcast, uh, which may get renamed, which I'm going to think about as um, I sleep tonight and um, until the next episode. So I've been Chris Booker Taylor. Uh, of course, you can find me on Twitter for this podcast at Zeitgeist, just my name, Chris T at the end. And uh, where can they find you, Brando? You could find me on Instagram, I guess, at Brando Cuts, B-R-A-N-D-O-C-U-T-T-S. If you, yeah, if you want to, and you can see pictures of my dog and me and uh, and the stuff I do. And if you want to yell at me about why Batman should be mean and broody, feel free to do that, and I'll tell you why you're wrong. For sure, yeah. I, I'm I'm proud that I remember Dan Reba, but that was only because I met him, yeah, and it was good. incredible. That's a pretty good one. I didn't know of him, so I'll have to look him up now to figure out what episodes he did. Uh, what's yeah, a few. Like I asked him what was his favorite one that he directed, and he liked uh, the Justice League Unlimited one, where it was for the man who has everything, where Superman is in that dream world where he has a kid and he's on Krypton and everything's okay, but on the other side of the world, it's actually a parasite that Mongol had put on him, uh, and Batman and Wonder Woman are trying to get it off of him before Mongol kills them. Basically, that's cool. There's there's a Buffy episode that's like that too, where uh, Buffy gets like stabbed by a demon and then she wakes up in an alternate reality where she like lived with her dad instead of her mom and like she's not a slayer and she just has like a normal life and then like you know throughout the episode like she wakes up and then like she realizes she wants to be in the other world so she starts like trying to kill everybody it was it's pretty cool yeah oh, that's cool very much of a it's a it's a trope huh but it's a cool it's a really neat trope of like here's an alternate reality of what you really wanted is it real and then you think it's real like it's such a cool idea yeah, it's the yeah exactly. Is it's a fiction that is more enticing than your reality. 
reality, but you can't accept it because you know it's a fiction. And then when you snap back to your reality, there's this sense of loss. Because even though that wasn't a reality, it was so real to you and what you wanted that it's a it's this very sorrowful loss coming back to reality. Yeah, yeah. Like from a really good dream. The, um, one of my favorite things about the Batman the Animated Series is uh, the actor who played the Riddler's voice. He also played, um, like, he's, he's had, like, four roles throughout DC properties. So he's also in, is he in Batman and Robin as, like, the uh, doctor that Pamela Isley works for? And then he's in Shazam. He plays the bad guy's dad. And then I think he's in Roswell. Or no, sorry, not Roswell. In Smallville. And he plays Michael Rosenbaum's dad on that in that show. So like Lex Luthor, the, the the Riddler voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. So he's been he's done a ton of different DC stuff. Yeah, he's really great. It's so cool how, how like how different all those projects are too. Yeah, Michael Rosenbaum's a cool guy. He has a very cool podcast. Oh yeah, I've I've, I've heard of his podcast, but I've never heard it. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. This was a good time. Good. I'm glad you had fun. That's all, folks. Roar! This has been a full dinosaur production.